Hello and welcome to the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore's podcast channel. With over 15,000 downloads since launch, we are excited to bring you season four featuring in-depth content on business, global affairs and news across Singapore, ASEAN and the United Kingdom. We've had some extraordinary guests on our channel, including W Series driver Abby Eaton. And we've got thoughts of the future now. Um, you know, I'd love to to try and kind of mentor some of the younger drivers. You know, renowned UK international education champion Professor Sir Steve Smith. Over about a four-year period, we kept increasing the resources going into mental health division. Chief executive and director of the London Design Museum. Tim Marlowe. The way we design is actually thinking about the needs of, of everyone. And CEO of the industry cluster group at JTC, Alvin Tan. If you look at TDD, we are creating an ecosystem of companies, government agencies and industry associations in the digital space. Thank you, as always, for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. So um, just a reminder for those of you um, who go beyond is, they're a consulting firm. So part of the Web Help Group, they work on broadening and deepening customer service to help break down organizational silos, to help brands create more of an omni-channel experience. So their services focus on consulting, innovation, management technology, as well as organizational excellence. And their clients are across a range of different sectors. So hopefully those of you listening in today will find this conversation helpful. And um, if you do want to learn more, obviously reach out to the Go Beyond Partners um, and move that conversation forwards. Wow. So um, without further ado, um, let's get into our next round of questions, because I think the last conversation that we had was, was really exciting there. So, um, Richard, I, I think I'll, I'll start with you on this one, if that's OK. So um, what are some behavioral science techniques that brands can apply to create a more personalized and engaging customer experience, particularly when it comes to the customer service infrastructure that they have set up? That their customers will be using to engage with that brand well yeah so so i guess you know one of the things about behavioral science is uh and i mentioned this in the last episode is we've learned a lot in a very short space of time about uh how to influence human behavior and what influences human behavior uh and in fact in, in behavioral science research there's been over 200 different uh behavioral biases and or heuristics mental rules of thumb that we know exist out there in the world that we help uh, that help guide our decision making so knowing which ones applies in a, apply in a particular context can be quite challenging and requires a, a level of knowledge and expertise. So, um, you know, there are many, many different ways to, to address these kind of problems. Um, but, you know, there is a kind of overarching uh, principle. And, and I would say, you know, when you look at the most successful brands in the 21st century, um, particularly in the digital world, you know, what you might call the fangs, the likes of Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, et cetera, um, what's dominated there and driven their success has been this ability to apply um, understanding of behavior at scale and to test and learn rapidly in applying that. And so, um, you know, and that's what's driven the success of the businesses, I would say, more than their technological innovation. Um, so, you know, it, I, I'm sadly old enough to remember when Google launched in 1998. And um, if you recall, at that point when Google launched, there were, there were multiple different search engines around uh, that you could use, the likes of Yahoo, AltaVista, uh, Ask Jeeves. Um, but what led to Google's dominance in, in the sector was primarily that they made things easy. So, uh, and what I mean by that, you know, Richard Thaler is a Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist who co-wrote the book Nudge. When he was asked to summarize the, the kind of principles of, of, of Nudge, 
in three words he says make it easy and that doesn't just mean you know making things physically easier for people it means making it mentally or cognitively easier for people to use as well and that is you know if you look at a brand like google the way they've used behavioral science techniques is to consistently make the user experience and the user interface as cognitively easy for people to use as possible so one classic example of this is you know if you think back to those days in 1998 when you use the other search engines you had to search by category the interface was really cr uh, crowded and, and cluttered with different buttons and ads and all those kind of things whereas google launched with a very simple um you know single bar you didn't have to enter your search queries a question like you did with rsgs if you remember that you have to say what is the capital of um malaysia rather than you know capital of malaysia as you can do with google um, and that very simple interface and, and making it cognitively easy for people to use drove their market dominance. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and even down to using some really counterintuitive things informed by behavioral science, such as um, the I'm feeling lucky button that Google has, that still has on the page. The data shows that virtually no one uses that. It's as close to 0% as, as, as it possibly could be. Uh, and in fact, you know, when people do use the the um, I'm feeling lucky button for their search on Google, it actually costs Google money because you go directly through to the search results rather than um, seeing the paid listings that advertisers have paid for. Yet that button, you know, 25 years on, that button is still on the Google page um, and it's still part of the interface. Um, and the reason for that is because it gives people confidence in the results that you give. Because what it's saying, the I'm feeling lucky button is Google is saying our search results are so good. You could go through the top search result, you'll probably find what you want. But it, just in case, here's the Google search so you can see all the listings and people still use that. And that's a behavioral concept we call self-efficacy. If you give people confidence in the service that you're providing, they value it more, they're more likely to use it. So that's a really uh, you know, tangible example, I think, of how behavioral science techniques have driven the growth of those kind of businesses as part of the infrastructure that they provide um, and part of the user interface. And, and obviously, one of the things that Google has, has built its, its success around has been consistently testing and learning using user data to understand some of these behavioral effects. So, um, you know, I, I guess that's one of my, uh, if you like, my mantras um, around this is that, you know, to be continually testing and learning, um, to be using real user data where possible behavioral data to inform um, uh, the, the way that we build great customer experiences. Uh, and customer service um, and you know that's one of the the, the, the techniques is, is just about making things as easy as possible from a user perspective not just physically easier to use but but mentally easier as well great yeah using google i think is a very relatable example that that everyone can understand there so that was very clear um, and ask cheese is such a, a blast from the past there <laughs> Um, so um, the next question I'm, I'm going to direct towards Dave, if that's okay. So how can behavioral science be used to foster greater brand advocacy in relation to customer service infrastructure? Yeah, thanks. I, it is really interesting because we talk, we often talk about loyalty and we talk about advocacy uh, and they're associated, they're linked, but they're not, they're not the same thing behaviorally. So Advocacy is the likelihood that you will recommend a brand or a company to someone else. And in the, the CX world, that's often measured by a, by a score that we call Net Promoter Score or, or NPS. And the, the philosophy behind that, that question is, would you recommend this brand? And it's usually expressed as to friends, colleagues, family. 
Um, and the reason that those references are used is because there is a degree of um, social risk. If you recommended a poor company to a colleague, you're going to see that colleague again. You wouldn't recommend a poor company to a family member or a friend because it might jeopardize that relationship with those people. So advocacy is, is very much associated with um, a kind of personal reputation in a way. I am uh, recommending this company to other people. That's a much more active uh, state to be in. Whereas loyalty can often be quite passive. If we, if we regard loyalty as the likelihood that I'm going to continue to purchase products or services from a company, I'm going to buy again, then we get into the area that, that Richard was just describing, which is you know, associated with the idea of effort. So how much effort is it not to buy from a company again, as much as you know, how much effort is it to buy from the company again? You know, if we think about financial services, historically, you know, a large part of the financial services kind of retail business model was built upon inertia. The effort it takes to change a bank account in the past was significant. And therefore, you would be loyal in the terms of continuing to use those financial services in the sense of, well, actually, I can't be bothered to change my bank account because all of my payments are linked to it, you know, and uh, that's a lot of hassle. Now, interestingly, through the digital world, many of those barriers, much of that effort of changing companies has been reduced or removed. So therefore... We can't rely on inertia as a mechanism for loyalty. We have to be, as brands, more conscious and active about securing loyalty. But interestingly, when you step over and look at it from the customer's point of view, they may not be uh, conscious of some of those uh, behavioral science interventions that we're putting in front of them to retain their loyalty because we're, we're taking away the friction we're making things easier to understand making it easier for people to make the right choices and get to the right outcome and actually that's reflecting what richard was talking about you know within much of the the nature of how uh, humans make decisions it's not as rational and conscious as we would like to think so when we look at loyalty in terms of behavioral science it quite often isn't about the wow moments. It isn't about the delighting the customer as much as removing friction, making things really simple, easy, clear, uh, and you know, able to understand. Advocacy then is something else. So advocacy, if you want to uh, recommend uh, a company, um, you're not unlikely to say, well, they're okay. Yeah, they're all right, I deal with them. It's never a problem quite like them you know you want to find those things where you say I absolutely love them you know their products are brilliant I had a problem and when I dealt with them the way they fixed it and sorted it out was amazing yeah. so it's interesting when we look at these two two concepts of loyalty and advocacy and I think certainly from a behavioral science point of view uh, removing friction to secure loyalty can create you know significant economic value for, for a client or for, for a brand. 
Yeah, and I know consumers today that we're so used to engaging with the apples of the world and, and other um, forward-looking and um, tech companies. So we we expect that experience across every brand, right? We we don't differentiate by industry. Um, so it's it's hugely important. Um, okay, so question for both of you. Um, can you each share examples of brands that have successfully applied behavioral science principles to enhance their customer experience? And, and what were the key strategies that they used? So I think if, if I think about uh, a retail client that we work with, so this was a, a client that had both e-commerce and physical stores. Um, and you know, like, like many organizations, they wanted to uh, respond to the shift to digital, but also were um, really conscious of the value that the brand experience delivered in a retail store. That they were uh, they're in in the market of selling um, leisure goods, you know, so uh, DIY, camping, bikes, etc. And um, for them, actually, the visit to the store was you know a really important touch point for the brand. But also, you know, they were aware that you know they didn't have stores in every location in every city, and therefore the the digital experience was was really key. And what was happening was that people were going to the store for, if you like, post-sale support. I bought a product, even if I bought it online, and then I needed to phone the local store, visit the local store to get the staff in there to, to fix that problem or answer my query. And actually economically for that client, uh, if they could get people to answer those questions online, where that was possible, or if they did need human support to direct that through a digital channel into a contact center, um, that was a lot more efficient uh, and cost effective. So we did a lot of work with them looking at the design of how they guided people to where best to find answers. And this, this looked at all, all communication, so when people had order confirmation emails, you know, and where they had even receipts and, and purchases, how they were instructed on where to go if they had a question. And um, that was about taking uh, less focus on phone numbers or visiting stores and really starting to guide people using some of the nudge techniques that, that Richard's team uh, are, are so strong at in terms of guiding people and, you know, with, with, with nudges that, typically say we uh, customers find they get a, a quicker answer in a, in a digital channel or we've you know uh, got a knowledge and self-service capability that that will enable you to deal with those queries so we did a number of things such as looking at all of their comms we redesigned their contact us and knowledge pages on their website to make it a lot easier for people to relate uh, the knowledge to the particular question they might have. And we did a lot of work about linking that to a journey. So are you wanting to buy a product? Have you already bought a product? Are you waiting for your delivery? And using those to just make it easier for people to categorize their question and, and get to answer. And then also uh, in Google search, uh, if you search for the company, typically it would give you the phone number for the local branch as part of the Google business response. And actually we started to deprioritize the phone number and present a chat into a Google search result. 
So somebody could actually chat directly with a digital support agent to answer a question rather than trying to get through to an individual store where the staff may be involved in serving customers in the shop and not actually have the time to answer a phone call, for instance. So I think that was one where we combined thinking around the digital channels with, uh, I guess, behavioral science within the communication that guided and steered people to um, where they would get a quicker and probably easier answer to a, to a query that they had. And I'm sure, Richard, you'll have lots of other examples as well. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's, there's a, I was going to, or I would like to share, I guess, a couple of examples, I guess, from the, again, from the, the wider world um, and, and some of those kind of dominant 21st century businesses um, to, to illustrate a couple of those, those principles. And then, and then I can talk to a couple of our specific um, experiences, particularly with the, the banking and financial services sector. So, so going back to your point, your question earlier about personalization, Nikki, I think one really interesting example, which is something that's been adopted in a widespread way across multiple different um, uh, e-commerce sites, um, and uh, it's about is the concept of the recommendation engine. Um, so what, what that means is that, you know, we, there's a concept in behavioral science, which is called the paradox of choice, which is that if we are given too many options to choose from, and we have too many things to choose from, and in most fields now we have an abundance of choice in terms of providers and services that we can use, um, we find that overwhelming as people often, and, and, we, and we face choice paralysis. So we don't make a decision because we have too many options and we can't possibly decide what the best one is. So anything that facilitates that and allows us to narrow down our options and, and make an easy choice is something that we really value. And a great example of this is, is Netflix. And, and this is a, a, an approach that's been copied by all of the kind of online streaming services now. There's so many different things. You know, when you sit down to watch Netflix, there are many, many, many different options available to you in terms of what movies and, and TV shows you could watch. So Netflix has to make that choice easier for us and make it easier for us to select something we will watch. And so it has a recommendation engine, which basically provides you with a percentage match um, of a particular show and recommends things to you based on how well it matches what you think you would like to watch, um, which is a personalized experience. Those recommendations are unique to you as a user. But um, what's interesting about that is one is that it's a, an approach that they replicated from dating websites. The kind of percentage match thing is something that, that dating websites use extensively. Um, but also is that as a user, we have no idea how that does, how it's recommending stuff to us, what the algorithm is that's powering that, and why it recommends certain shows. Um, but because it helps us with deciding what to watch, um, it's something that's hugely powerful and drives a huge amount of loyalty to that particular product. Amazon Prime is another great example. Um, you know, there's a thing called the power of free in behavioral science. Things that we feel are free, uh, we value uh, significantly more than 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 we should. Um, because we feel we're getting something for nothing and and it, ger it generates a sense of reciprocity towards the brands that, that, that deliver free products for us. So, um, and what was interesting with Amazon Prime in particular is that when Amazon um, uh, did the analysis around the impact of Amazon Prime, they did the econometric analysis, it predicted that it would be hugely um, unprofitable for them as a business. It was going to cost them millions and millions of dollars every year, but they decided to run a test on it anyway. Um, to look at to look at actual user data. So in the US, they ran a controlled test where they offered Amazon Prime. So this is unlimited free delivery for a monthly subscription. Um, they decided to see what impact that had on user behavior. Um, and what they found was that 
um, it was a huge driver of loyalty to the product. So um, those people who had Amazon, uh, Amazon Prime were spending nearly twice as much every month on Amazon products and then, then people who didn't have Amazon Prime. Um, and they were visiting, they weren't spending more per purchase, they were just visiting the site more often, drove an awful lot of repeat usage and nearly 100% more repeat usage of the site. Uh, and so once they found that and they tested it with real users, they ignored the econometric analysis, which had been based on very rational drivers of behavior um, and, and rolled it out across the world. So those are some examples from the wider world of the application principles. How we view some of these principles in, in our work, um, we have a process that we call cognition audits, which we use to identify um, nudges that can be applied in communications channels. We worked with a, a credit card company who were very successful at driving people to their website to apply for credit cards. But then there was a very high dropout of customers and bounce rate once they arrived on the website, they weren't actually going through to application. So we did a cognition audit of the site. We identified that one of the key problems to that point about making it easy was that when people arrived on the site, you actually had to scroll through three pages before you actually found the apply online button. Um, so what we did was we moved the apply online button above the fold. So it was the first thing you saw when you landed on the site, changed the wording, changed the color of that, and it instantly increased um, click-throughs by 58%. Um, similarly, um, working with in the banking sector, um, we worked with a client where um, they had a huge issue uh, with their security and verification process. Um, so people were calling up and they weren't able to access their account because they were consistently failing the security and verification questions. Um, what we, um, which obviously was driving a very negative customer experience for them. What we identified was that one of the reasons is that um, when people are stressed or anxious, what tends to happen is we forget key information. You might have experienced this yourselves. If you've ever been, you know, needed to uh, under uh, conditions of stress, need to withdraw money from a, an ATM, for example, you get there and suddenly your PIN number's gone out of your head. <laughs> uh, and you know, those under those conditions of stress, we find it difficult to re retain key information. So what we did was we reframed the wording and the language that was used around the security questions without changing the question themselves to make customers less anxious. So they felt less less it was felt less confrontational, frankly. Um, so the bank wasn't saying to them, if you can't answer these questions, we can't give you access to your money. It was more uh, along the lines of, um, don't worry, if you fail the security process, we've got another process we can take you through. Put people at ease but without compromising the integrity of that security process. And that proved to be hugely effective in terms of you know, length, oh, sorry, shortening the, the length of calls because people weren't having to go through multiple security processes because they were getting their questions right first time, but without compromising the security of that. Uh, and what it meant was that um, there was a significant increase in customer satisfaction, um, but also, as I say, there was a, uh, an operational benefit in that the calls were much shorter because people were getting through the security process much more quickly. So those are some examples, I guess, of how some of those principles can be applied and how we apply those in customer experience and, uh, and, and how they can also drive brand loyalty to those points. Yeah, it's amazing how things can go out of your head when you're under pressure, even if you know it off by heart, all of a sudden it's uh, ungraspable. Um, and Amazon Prime, I mean, what an example of, of uh, a loyalty program, a paid loyalty program. It's um, really fascinating, the success of that. Um, okay, so final question from me, looking ahead, what trends or developments do you both see on the horizon for the intersection of behavioral science and customer experience? I think um, if, if we jump on 
I guess, the, the latest trend and buzzwords and, and talk about generative AI, you know, chat GPT being the most famous example. Um, I think what's interesting there is, you know, chatbots have been around for a long time. And I would say that they have been improving in terms of both customer experience and uh, effectiveness pre-chat GPT. And typically what you see is that um, the AI that those types of chatbots use is focused on language understanding. So it's very much focused on trying to identify what the customer is trying to achieve, what's called their their intent. So what's the, what's the mission they've got? What's the job they're trying to get done? And using natural language technology to allow the customer to express that question in their own language. And then the chatbot would recognize it. And once it recognizes what the customer is trying to achieve, it would typically then follow a relatively structured and scripted dialogue flow, a journey through that process, extracting information from the customer that it needs to look up an order, answer a piece of uh, FAQ questions, you know, knowledge questions, you know, complete a transaction. So it was, if you like, possible working with, with teams such as Richard to use yeah, behavioral science and nudge techniques in how you scripted the answers. Yeah? So you would write the answers the chatbot gives you to you know, nudge the customer through that journey and make it a really uh, enjoyable uh, and, and simple experience. The difference now where we get into generative AI with, with things like ChatGPT is it's not scripted. It is generating its own responses in highly naturalistic language and giving you that answer that information and that you know is is effectively almost a sort of black box algorithm you know how does it generate language that sounds more human sounds much more conversational but also is able to cope with uh, a much less structured interaction with the customer so much more like a conversation with a human would be and the interesting thing is then how will these chatbots use behavioral science in how they actually talk to us? Will we be nudged in very naturalistic human conversations uh, as opposed to, if you like, the behavioral science being uh, more scripted and conscious in terms of how organizations have put it in? Because we will be reliant on the providers of these technologies to generate that, those language models. So I think, you know, there is uh, a great deal of potential that comes to that, but also inevitably there's always, you know, very rightly some concerns around the ethics and controls that sit around things that sound very human, but because we are human, we're very lazy at verification. So if what we're being told sounds plausible, then behavioral science will tell us, well, actually we're quite likely to believe it and not seek a second and third verification but we know that there is a lot of evidence of what they call hallucination uh, in the responses that that some of these technologies give which it, it sounds plausible but is wholly inaccurate uh, so i think that's an area where we will see a lot of work uh, and adoption taking place but also a lot of concern around data and controls and, and ethics uh, going forwards but you know i think it feels like an inevitability 
that lang you know, large language models, generative AI will become normalized in its adoption in how we interact with brands, you know, within the relatively near future. Yes, I'd agree hundred uh, percent. And I, and I think, you know, that one of the, the challenges as, as Dave mentioned is that, um, you know, we need to ensure as generative AI becomes more widespread in its usage, we need to make sure that that understanding of the of behavioral biases and, 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 you know, what humans are looking for from great customer experience is baked into those tools. Um, as with any new technology, as it becomes adopted and widespread, but as Dave says, the, the, the challenge that we now face is that it, it's, those tools are sounding increasingly plausible um, and, and that, but yet the information is not accurate. If you've had any interaction with ChatGPT, you'll know that it's very easy to get it to say things that are frankly untrue, um, and, uh, but in a very convincing way. So, um, you know, one of the things about um, these kind of tools is that, you know, they are still being used or the, the reason for creating them and for brands for, to use them is for the benefit of people. Um, you know, until we reach the singularity and depending on who you believe that, you know, that might be very soon, um, you know, then these, we are creating these tools for the benefits of humans. We as people listening to this, Broadcast are, you know, are people. Um, we're not being replaced by robots or aliens yet. Um, and so the 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 efficacy of these tools is is only as extensive as the benefit that they provide to humans. Um, and as we've discussed in these uh, in these episodes, you know, as humans we are non-rational. So today's point, you know, if we are uncertain whether we are talking to a bot or a human, that isn't a bad experience for a human because we we do not like uncertainty um, and we feel deceived if we subsequently find out that we've been talking to a bot and we thought we were talking to a human or vice versa. So, so that uncertainty and understanding of those drivers of human behavior remains important. Um, and so, but needs to be baked into the design of these tools. And as Dave says, the, the difference with generative AI is that, you know, it is creating things that, uh, and delivering um, experiences to consumers that will influence our behavior um in a convincing way but um unless we have the right inputs unless we have the right frameworks around it around the ethical use of of, uh, of these techniques to influence behavior then it could lead to some very negative outcomes and you know and the other aspect is as humans as, as customers what we often want in a lot from a lot of experiences uh, is from a lot of customer experiences some empathy and some creativity in particular in terms of problem solving and the fact is these ai tools are in behavioral science terms, they are very system two. They're very logical, they're very rational because they are based on algorithms, they're based on rules. Um, the difference between the human and algorithm is you feed the same data into an algorithm twice, you'll get the same answer. Um, that's not true of humans. So, um, you know, when we, there are circumstances, particularly if we're seeking to make a complaint um, or, or uh, get some kind of resolution to a, a customer query where things have gone awry, um, well, we want someone to recognize that, to be empathetic, and robots don't have the ability to do that because they're not human. So, so there's, there's still going to be limits in the use cases in which these kind of new tools and technologies can be applied, where a human still needs to be driving the interaction. Um, and, and, a, and a key part of that is accountability as well. You know, if I were in an accident tomorrow uh, in my car with a self-driving car, I'd want someone to take responsibility for that. My insurance company would want someone to take responsibility for that. Um, and um, and 
it's not clear at the moment how that would work. Um, and in the same way, if you know you are given a bad experience by a generative AI in your interaction with the brand, you would want someone to rectify that and to take responsibility for it. Our innate need for justice as humans requires it. So you know those are challenges that are behavioural, that are uniquely human. Um, and so you know the where the intersection of behavioural science and customer experience um, will go in the future, I think, is 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 around resolving some of these issues. And today's point, making sure that our understanding of the, the drivers of human behavior is a key input into the design of these um, of these tools, not only to ensure they deliver a better experience, but for ethical reasons as well. Great, thank you, Richard. It's, um, it's a fascinating topic and one that's very topical right now. I know almost everyone is talking about ChatGPT. Uh, so yeah, very, very helpful um, and to better understand how it could be used to, to, to better influence current working practices. So I think um, that brings us to the end of uh, this second podcast that we've recorded with Go Beyond Partners. So um, thanks again to both Dave and, and Richard, and um, we hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks, Nikki. Goodbye. Thank you. Thanks, Nikki. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore's podcast channel. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe and why not leave us a rating and review on Spotify, Apple, Google and the other podcast platforms. For more information about the Chamber, please visit our website at www.britcham.org.sg and tune in next time for a brand new episode.